something outside. What is that? Shoulders of Giants, Talking Old Timers with Thomas. We want to welcome you all back. I believe this is our fourth episode, and I want to let you guys know that we have a very special show for you. I not only have Thomas with us, but we have a special guest, but let me bring Thomas on first. Thomas, how are you? I'm doing just fine, dear. Worrying about you as usual with all your hurricanes. I know. Yeah, it was uh, a little rough there. We had two of them in less than a month that came through our way, and um, it's there's still a lot of things messed up down here on the coast of North Carolina. It's just really yeah, that's what think, yeah. And yeah, it's a lot of stuff that's still torn up, but um, we'll we'll definitely get through it. You know, uh, everybody's kind of joining together and and pulling through it. So. We have a very interesting guest today, somebody that is near and dear to our own very heart. He is the owner of Bigfoot Books in Willow Creek, California. He's a member of the Bluff Creek Project out there. They're doing a lot of great things with their um, game cam project and other things that they do related to the whole Bluff Creek area where the patty film was uh, filmed. So... That's what we're going to be discussing with Stephen Schrofert, and I hope I got that right. Stephen, how are you? <laughs> I'm just laughing at that. You, you know, it's been my whole life people have mispronounced my last name. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh, Lord. Have, I'll tell you what. <clears throat> we're going to have a heck of a show, though. How's it going out there in California? You guys staying busy at Bigfoot Books? Uh, not so busy anymore, except for the marijuana industry. Uh, the whole mm, yeah. smells weed right now. Um, wow. On the air. Uh, it's harvest time. Uh, so, yeah, you go downtown and you see a, the lines of international hippies waiting for a job. Oh. Yeah. It became legal up here in Canada, too. Hey, congratulations on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I heard I, about I, that. I expect a lot more exciting in the next few weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what people in Humboldt County, well, it's the marijuana growing capital of the world. It's also wow. the Bigfoot capital of the world. Uh, are they connected somehow? <laughs> what a coincidence. I, I know that the Canadians are going to start being even more friendly than before. So there's always that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay. It would be like Woodstock Nation up there. <laughs> I love it. Too funny. All right. So here's what we're going to talk about tonight. Now, you know, I have this 
obsession, if you will, about the whole Patty film because I'm on the fence about the film. And if no. some of our listeners may not know what the Patty film is, it was um, an alleged Bigfoot creature that was recorded in Bluff Creek, California back in 1967 in October by Bob Gimlin and Roger Patterson. Most people have probably seen the film. If not, Google it because it's all over the Internet. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things that that happen behind the scenes with that whole film. And, and let me let me start with Thomas. Now, Thomas, you and I have been talking about this film for some time. Do you think the subject in, in that film is a, an actual Bigfoot? Well, I'll just say this. If the Sasquatch, or Bigfoot as you call it, in the United States does indeed exist, I believe Roger Parrish and Bob Gillum filmed one on October 20th, 1967. Okay. If it doesn't exist, and it never today, did. It's the greatest hoax ever pulled on the North American public. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, today's October the 18th, so um, here in two days will be the 51 anniversary. Now, let me ask you the same question, Stephen about that film. Do you think that's an actual creature recorded in that film? Well, not only that, though, it's uh, Bob Gimlin's birthday today. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's right. Shout out to Bob Gimlin. Happy he, uh, birthday, Bob. Almost, <laughs> he almost got born on the same day he got famous, but not quite. Uh, <laughs> as far as that film goes, though, I have to say it's, um, it's a great enigma. To me, uh, mm-hmm. it often looks very real, and then at other times it looks not real at all. And it, it's, a, it's a real puzzle to me, even after having seen it probably 10,000 times by now, and, you know, mm-hmm. scouring the frame for whatever detail, uh, especially when we were trying to find the film site, we looked at every stick and stump and rock in that film. Uh, but I am officially agnostic about it, as I mm-hmm. am with Big General. I mean, kind of like Thomas says, uh, if it's real, it's real. If it's not, it's not, right? And all we can do is look at the facts of the matter. Um, that film, though, it's hard to ascertain what the facts really are. Uh, the story of it that led up to it is very strange, and the aftermath of it is very strange, and the, the claims from the other side, the hoax theorists, are also very strange. So. Um, I think, you know, it's a wonderful mystery, uh, which just happens to be more or less in my backyard. And mm-hmm. I enjoy that. You know, um, it's only 29 miles from here to Bluff Creek. So it's, it's great to, to live so close to something that's so popular in the public imagination. Um, but, you know, I still think that film's not good enough to prove anything, uh, if it is a costume, it's a very good one. And Roger mm-hmm. Patterson had genius to uh, make it and also to film it in the way he did so that you never quite see it closely enough to ever see the, you know, zipper or whatever it is that a suit might have. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, on the other side, I just want, would say that as far as Bob Euronymous and Greg Long and all that go, there's more problems with their stories than there are with the stories of Bob Gimlin and Roger himself. You know, I can find the way to make the I find makes sense in my own mind. 
having driven on those roads, I know that um, if the film could have been developed in a shop overnight uh, or the next day, then the timeline makes sense. You know, uh, it's not a problem for them to have done what they said they did. Hmm. Okay. Now, um, you mentioned Bob Hermonymus. Is that how you say his last name? I always confuse that one. Hermonymus. Uh, yes, that's it. Thank you. Now, uh, he is the gentleman that stepped up and said that he's the one that was wearing the actual quote-unquote costume in that film. Well, he's the latest. He's what? He's the latest. There's been several claims by other people, some uh, claiming other people wore the suit as well. You know, Jerry oh, Romney really? was the Jerry Romney, yeah, 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 yeah. But Hieronymus is the only one who came out and said he actually was the guy. Yeah, and, and then, of course, old Philip Morris came out and said he sold Patterson the suit, and Greg Long put that extra chapter on his book, which completely contradicted the first 442 pages. First 442 pages, he was claiming Roger Patterson made the suit out of dead horse hides, and all of a sudden he threw on this Philip Morris chapter at the very back of the book, saying that he sold the suit. You know, Philip Morris was a famous mm -hmm. carny back sixties and seventies with his gorilla costumes. He was the one that you was well known for supplying costumes to that, you know, Zana, the ape woman who transforms into an ape before your very eyes. You'd look in a cage and she'd mm -hmm. disappear in the shadows and all of a sudden this guy in a gorilla suit would charge the bars, make everyone scream and fall back. That kind of thing. And I think yeah, he I mean, just on it. He claimed he sold Roger Patterson the suit, and uh, Greg Long thought he found the, the the missing piece there, and he added on. But if you read the book, he's basically contradicting his the first 442 pages of his own book. Yeah, I mean, and then Bob Hieronymus went along with the story at the end. Yeah. So it, it makes Bob Hieronymus a liar right there in his own book. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, not to mention not, those... Bob Hieronymus can't even, doesn't even know where the film site is. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. is, I've driven around Bluff Creek with that great long book in the front seat, and if you follow his directions, you're in Witchpeck or at the Bluff Creek Resort, which is at the bottom of the hill by the river, and you're supposed to drive five miles up the road, and then he says they got to the point where that's where the film site was after five miles. Well, <laughs> it's not true. It's more like 25 to get mm -hmm. to the point where yeah. you go upstream to the film site. And it's another three miles up the that road, which is barely a road at all. It was just a plow through the creek bed. Uh, so uh -huh. Bob Hieronymus, his directions lead you up the hill near Fish Lake, which is uh, up along the ridge going up to the top of Onion Mountain. Uh, it's nowhere near the film site. And the fact that he says that just shows his story is made up. It's not something you would forget, this long, rugged road that takes you to the film site. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, and the film site now is more remote today than it was in the late 1960s. I mean, um, I believe the ro the old road that used to, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Stephen, but the old road that used to run right along the creek at that point, 
was the original Bluff Creek Timber Access Road, where the original Jerry Crew prints were found in 1958. Is that correct? Yeah, well, there's two roads. There was the, yeah. what we call the 12 and 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, that goes up from what's there now, the, the concrete bridge. Uh, it wasn't there in 67. Mm-hmm. And that road goes up to Lonesome Ridge on the west side of the creek. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there was no access down from there into the creek until you got around the other side to um, near the top of that road. You could then go down the creek it, where that uh, rock slide is that is seen in the earlier footage on the roll of film. Mm-hmm. You've gone down that. Uh, there's a creek right by there, and you could go down to the film site that way. Uh, but there was another road that was like a seasonal cat trail uh, that went along the eastern side of the creek, right down in the creek bed. Uh, and that is the road that Patterson and Gillen rode up on on their horses. Uh, you can also fact. see that in that film, the the earlier minutes of that film roll that has the Patty Bigfoot part on the end of it. Uh, but that road had to be cleared every year almost because parts of it would be washed away or covered in rock slides and stuff. Um, so um, I have my neighbor, Jay Rowland, actually plowed that road with the Caterpillar uh, many years, <laughs> um, all the way up to and past the film site. But that road is basically gone now, uh, completely gone. So if you want to go up the creek, uh, the 12 and 10 is closed too, uh, that segment of it. So you have to walk up the creek three miles. Um, but, but luckily since then, there's been another road that was put in. They used to call the Sasquatch Road and that's the 12 and 13. So, uh, now you can catch on that road and go down to the film site from the top of the ridge. And it's that's a lot easier that, that is. That's the one that used to go down to the bat box, right? But I believe it's been cut short about a mile up now or a kilometer up. Yeah, yeah, a mile. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's basically a, a mile to the film site. Right. You uh, you can drive down that road. It's about two miles almost to the bottom, but the last uh, mile you have to hike in. So you park at the dead end where they put a big berm uh, you can't even get past it with a quad runner. Uh, you have to winch yourself back up on the other side of it if you do. But um, <laughs> you have to hike down in there. And I, um, it is a little bit more inaccessible that way. Uh, and also they haven't logged up there in, in quite a long time. So uh, everything up there is grown back very densely. Uh, oh, yeah. Like down in that creek. As a matter of fact, I'd like to say what Stephen and his uh, Bluff Creek project did was absolutely fantastic. They basically determined that most of the landmarks you actually see in the Patterson-Gimlin footage are, in fact, still there. Uh, most people thought that maybe the, but things like the big tree and stuff were gone. I mean, I only, I've only ever been, because I'm way up here in Canada, I've only ever been to the film site twice, once in 1983 and again in 2003. And when we, in 1983, you could still recognize it fairly. And in 2003, you couldn't recognize it at all because it's not even a clearing anymore. There's uh, 40 foot 
new growth forest in that clearing where that where the Patterson footage was shot. The only way I remembered how to get to it as that was at 12 and 13 uh, back then you could go almost down to the creek on that and it stopped at where where the bat boxes were and you just wa- hiked up to the creek turn right and you walked along the creek to you just before you got to an area where it's straight as an arrow with a high bank called the bowling alley and you look north at that point and that was the film site that's how i remember it's like i said i haven't been there since 2003 and what steven and his group did was absolutely fantastic the way they found out that most of the stuff is still there. Yeah, Steve, you guys were working on that recently, weren't you? You were working on what now? You're um, figuring out where all the uh, areas were and exactly where Patty crossed at. You guys just uh, were there with Bob Gimlin not long ago, weren't you? Yeah, well, our team goes up there with a lot of different groups of people and journalists now. And we've got a bunch of guys who are all sharing in the sort of um, responsibilities of preserving the site and mm-hmm. making sure Good. it's known and there's directions to it so people don't get lost and so people don't listen to M.K. Davis or all the other people who are uh, wrong about the location. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, when we tried to uh, find it after the 2003 confusing mess that happened after the uh, Bigfoot Symposium here in Willow Creek. Uh, it was really lost, and we we went through all of the books and all the literature and all the forums. Uh, we found at least five different claimed locations, and the more we looked, the more sites we found uh, from people like uh, Al Hodgson, who didn't remember it completely, and the Forest Service had no institutional memory. Uh, so eventually, uh, we just realized we had to investigate all of these sites. And we went up and down the creek looking at each one, you know, and we realized that Peter Byrne didn't remember. And, you know, at the symposium, uh, Daniel Perez, whose book actually has the mark on the map that Renee Hinden made, he, Perez still couldn't find it. It was in his book, and uh, so we tested all of these uh, these claim sites, including Christopher Murphy's and so on and so forth, and they were all insufficient, lacking in any evidence, any remaining evidence, and we figured there had to be remnant uh, artifacts because, for one, uh, old-growth fur will grow for hundreds of years, so... 50 years or 45 years is nothing to a, a a fir tree. They can get big like redwoods, and uh, we figured that big tree in the film was probably still there, uh, especially after we discovered that the logging projects had not been done very much at all in that area, especially after 1965 and 66 when they did the salvage logging up there after the 1964 flood. Uh, that creek was full of uh, old timber that had washed down into these log jams and left behind these giant root balls, which uh, Bob Gimlin talked about, root balls as tall as a room. And uh, we found those, and we found the big tree eventually, and we found all the stumps and things that were left behind by the salvage logging. So 
Um, despite what MK Davis or any of those guys say, uh, we were able to prove it uh, with mathematics, you know, identifying from the old photos and such, just about everything uh, that you see in the film is still there, uh, preserved on the mm -hmm. sandbar that uh, has never washed away since 1964. In 2003, we went down there, John Green, myself, Chris Murphy, uh, Dimitri Baranoff, and we took Bob Gimlin down. And when we took Bob Gimlin down there in 2003, that, had the fir that was the first time he had ever been back since the day they shot the film in 67. He's been back there a dozen times since then for various documentaries and stuff, but when we took him down there in 2003, that was the first time he'd ever been back since the day they shot that film, and he didn't. He couldn't recognize the thing. It had changed so much. Wow. But, Steve, am I basically right when I say it's the area north just before you hit the bowling alley? Yeah, you can see it on the topo map if you yeah yeah. yeah. topo map, it's really easy to find. You just look for that one segment mm -hmm. that goes directly north. <laughs> it's right, like a bullet alley. Uh, yeah, it's but... very straight and linear, and when you're in it, mm -hmm. you can say to yourself, "Well, this is it. Uh, I'll have to turn back now." Yeah. Uh, and you turn back just a few paces, and you're uh, turn around, you're looking at the film site. It's Correct. right there. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, even then, in 2003, all those people like Moneymaker and Autumn Williams and Bob Gimlin, they all walked right through the film site and stood on it, even. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's a small, they were obsessed. It's a small sandbar about as big as a football field. Yeah, they all they all became obsessed with a little area that was still kind of open there, and they thought that might be part of it. And it was actually, well, maybe touching the one end of it, maybe. But no, they were they were just 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 a little short of it. Yeah, that mm. that area is lower sandbar. We spent yeah. a lot of time looking in there, but we couldn't find anything that corresponded with the things in the film. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, it does look more like. Uh, what we see in the film, especially the the more it's more open. You know, mm -hmm. this is what drove M.K. Davis downstream because he saw the area that we identified as the film site, but he said, no way, that's too small. Uh, there's not enough sand, not enough gravel, there's not enough room for the film. But when you measure the, the sandbar, it's the exact size that Renee DeHinden measured back in the day. So we were able to replicate that and we have all of the trees and stumps that were measured by Renee and John Green, except for the uh, the, the alder trees that you see in the film. Uh, those are all dead in the sandbar there from the flood, and they fell down and rotted away. Yeah, so we yep. can't do those, but we have enough to do triangulation, and we have enough to determine where the creature walked and where the film uh, camera was. Um, I mean, there's still some controversy about the lens size, but, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we can triangulate it back to the point where Roger had to be standing to uh, film, you know, the various parts of the film. And, you know, he was moving through the whole process, too. So we actually have several points that we can show you that are, 
um, where he stopped and filmed and moved and moved again. Um, especially at the end there, he had to move forward a lot to yeah, and you, uh, you got to remember the human eye interprets things differently and film different film stocks show things differently and your depth perception is altered a little bit. Like you look at the Patterson-Gimlin film, a 60 millimeter Kodachrome 2 film, the film site actually gives you the impression it's a little bigger than it actually is. And if you look at the Jim McLaren footage that John Green shot this year later on, on what I think was much clearer film, 8 millimeter film shot by John Green, the whole site looks half the size. Huh. So yeah. Down there, it's deceiving. It's very deceiving. Hmm. It, it can create a lot of illusions. Uh, I mean, the site is mysterious. We couldn't see it even when we were standing on it. Mm -hmm. so, wow. There's videos we made along the way where you can see us walking right by the big trees and stumps, and we just hadn't figured it out yet. But, uh, but once you get you study the film enough, like Bill Munns did, it becomes very helpful to seeing how the film action occurred, where, you know, the camera is moving from west to the east, basically, and the subject is heading north and then arcs towards the east and uh, escapes back out toward the creek that way. So, you know, the film site doesn't have to be gigantic, and uh, it really... Um, wasn't back then, but there's less of it left there now because the whole front end of it was um, washed back down to more to the bedrock because uh, in 67 there was still a lot of deposited sand and gravel down there in the creek bed. Um, so the water level was higher. And, and that's yeah, most of them a huge flood in 64 as I understand it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just interesting that you guys were able to find it after all that time and actually going right by it. And I mean, that's just kudos to you guys for your hard work. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, thanks. It was three three years of seasons, you know. Uh, excellent job. Yeah. Excellent yeah. job. I was very impressed with watching what you guys did. I was very happy you guys did what you did. It was a super job. Well, thanks. And everybody can go down there now, which is a cool thing to me. Um, I know there were a few people who wanted it being a secret to remain so, you know. Um, and there was a lot of resistance to us investigating this thing. Uh, along the way, you know, Bigfoot people don't always divulge information freely. And uh, <laughs> uh <-huh>. there, <laughs> there, there was a lot of false information, too. Um, and we didn't even know if Renee DeHinden was telling the truth because... No, oh, I could tell you right he now. He was known to be a joker. And, uh, oh, <laughs> I could tell you right oh, now, Renee DeHinden loved sending people a little off course when he went when he sent them down there and gave them directions. As a matter of fact, I could tell you one real quick story. Renee DeHinden told Daniel Perez he took a big, big uh, iron uh, nail with the letters... 352, and he said he hammered that into the ground where uh, where uh, 352, frame 352 was, and he just got a chuckle knowing Daniel Perez is going down there with a mine detector trying to find this stake. Yeah, yeah we had all over it with a metal detector, and just 
just this last time we found a piece of rebar up there, and mm-hmm. uh, Daniel Perez wanted to take it home. <laughs> uh, did you find a little piece of tin can nailed to the big tree by any chance? Uh, no. Well, you know, I have. We we did find some uh, um, lids, you know, old rusted pieces of metal. Okay. Uh, that looked like Renee's tobacco lids. Oh wow! But, uh, those were scattered in the creek bed. Like well, uh, uh, I I nailed in 1983 on the back end of the big tree, uh, the tree with all the woodpecker holes in it. I nailed a piece of tin to the back end of the tree, but it wasn't a very long nail, so weather was still there after all this time. I have no idea, but that was just my way of marking the tree at the time. Well, I'm down yeah. there and see if it's still yeah. there, but. <laughs> Back in 78, which was the, one of the years where you could still barely see through to the back of the film site, this guy Healy from uh, from Australia went up there, and he did the same thing where he walked up and found the bowling alley and then realized he must be too far. And then he went back downstream, and he said the only way he could find it was because there was a piece of wood stuck in the ground with uh, one of Renee de Hinden's tobacco lids tacked on the top of it. <laughs> so that was, wow. that was the sign for a while there. Um, but mysteriously, Daniel couldn't find the site. And when we took him up there uh, to the actual site after we'd proven it, he says to me, um, looking in astonishment, he said, um, Wow, I didn't realize it was this far upstream. So well, I even say, you know, it was just we went there in two thousand four. There was a big group looking at it, and the guides who took them down there were pointing to an area not even close. And Daniel and I looked at each other and said, uh, "Guys, you're in the wrong spot." So we headed upstream, and a bunch of them followed us. Daniel came to that clear, and he said, "This was it." I said, "Go oh, just a little further." And he he thought that yeah. clearing was it. Daniel was oh, no, very just, close. He said that just, just, in the no, just before you get to the bowling alley, that's where it is. You can see him in that video though from the Autumn Williams show, the mysterious monsters. Oh Daniel yeah. Daniel's there and saying, "This is the film site. Mm-hmm. You know, we know this is it right here." And he's on that gravel bar, literally he's about. <laughs> he's fifty yards perhaps yeah. downstream yeah. from the first sighting spot. He was uh, very close. Very um, close. <laughs> in fact, Roger had swung that camera a little bit more to the left. He might have picked up a part of that spot, but no. Yeah, well, that probably right. just before when they're riding their horses and they saw the creature across the mm-hmm. creek diagonally, that, that's just past where Daniel was standing there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and in 2003, Bobo told me this, that uh, after they had all walked past it and gotten lost, Gimlin was standing there, and he had been and seen the bowling alley, and he was staring at the canyon walls, and he said privately to Bobo, uh, you know, Bobo, I think this could be the spot right here. Um, and you know what? It turned out we marked that spot. He was only about 20 yards or less off from the the first sighting spot, even though the road that they were on is gone now. <laughs> so, like where where he and Roger were is above your head <laughs> when you're standing in the creek bed now. 
the ground would have been above your head and the horses up there, uh, all the action. So it's a, it's a fascinating enigma wrapped up in a mystery, and thus the debate continues. And it does. And yeah. I'll tell you, <laughs> let's, let's delve into Rennie for a moment. Um, I know that he at first really thought that that film had to be it. It was legit. And I know that oh. he got frustrated with things at the end. And, and I think Stephen has a part of a letter there that Rennie had wrote. Um, Stephen, you still have that that you could share with yeah. us? Unfortunately, I can't read it in the same great voice that Thomas will do. But uh, it's a it's a quote from a letter that Renee wrote in 1991. And we saw this letter uh, at a camp out in Bluff Creek. Um, some of our friends that we met up there had it. And he says in there, 1991, this is pretty late in the game, he says, makes me wonder if there is anything out there at all. And we are wasting our time all these years. Would be a hell of a thing. Everything seems to be standing still at the present. I don't know if this is a good thing, because we seem not to get any place. Often I wonder if I should just say, hell with it, and forget about the whole Bigfoot thing. As you can tell, I am down in the dumps. It seems that this is going on and on forever. Oh, well, to hell with it. Wow. <laughs> yeah, the last, the last few years, when he was alive, he was really down in the dumps on the whole subject, yes. That's 10 years before he passed away. Mm-hmm. Wow. As you know, he fact, went from believing it could be real to to hell with it. Well, you might say, and I've said this before when we were talking about Rene, he spent 1957 to 1967 studying the Sasquatch. He basically spent 1967, the day he died, studying the Patterson film. Because when he went to the first viewing of the film at Aldi Atley's home that following Sunday, he was determined. He 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 didn't like Roger Patterson. He didn't like Roger Patterson at all. He thought he referred to him as the bullshit artist. That's what he used to refer to him as. <laughs> and he was determined to prove it was a hoax, but he couldn't do it. He said everything he, he, he all the measurements he took, and until Stephen and his group did what they did, Rennie probably did the most comprehensive study of the film side that anyone ever did. And he uh, he was convinced that. There was the film was genuine. If there is a Sasquatch, he really he really believed Roger and Bob filmed it. He 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 was he was convinced of that until he started doubting the whole subject altogether as a whole. Oh, okay. he'd been doing it for so long that yeah, there there wasn't any progress. Um, back in '58 they actually had this impression amongst themselves that it was going to be solved any day now. You know, yeah. <laughs> to us, that, I mean, that's 60 years ago this year. Mm-hmm. It's an anniversary that people are forgetting, but the um, 60 years since Jerry Crew brought those tracks to the Humble Times paper and they made Bigfoot a household name. And we've mm-hmm. still made progress 
uh, in fact, today I think we're actually going backwards, you know, from the yeah. glory day, the rational Bigfooting with people like Thomas on board, you know, and John Green and Renee and all that bunch, the Titmus and um, those were serious outdoorsmen and irrational thinkers. Now we have a bunch of lunatics running the asylum. Like, uh, yeah. like, uh, well, even, uh, Renee was fond of saying crazy things about, uh, um, Grover Krantz. Like, uh, he says this in another quote I have here. Uh, God, <laughs> where, where should I start? Um, he's talking about the faking of Freeman tracks. And he says, which, uh, bleep, uh, word I have to cut out. I guess, which Leap Krantz thinks are real. My God, this Krantz is sick in the head. Everyone knows that the tracks are faked. And we tell this to Krantz, but I guess he gets so much attention and publicity that he does not seem to give a damn anymore, if he ever did. Uh, but that is another case. Maybe somebody left the gate open at the Sunny Farm and he escaped. Oh, my. Well, I've got I've, I've got a binder of course. I've got a binder of correspondence with Rene, and almost I'd say a third of those letters start off with the words "that goddamn clans." <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! Well, I think that oh. Rene must have felt in some way or other that guys like Krantz and Patterson were latecomers to the game and they were stealing his uh his domain from him. Yeah, Rene Rene in the early years he wanted to be the one to find Sasquatch. He was very suspicious of people and their motives. Uh I don't know if he ever said bad things about me to other people. I no one's ever told me, but I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised. I never heard of <laughs> Yeah. All, all I say is I love the guy and I like to say he loved me sometimes. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's quite the character. Um, but he I was. imagine he, he never did get a glimpse of the Sasquatch creature that he was so searching for. And with that many years in, I, I don't know how you could not be completely frustrated. I mean, oh, uh, absolutely. John Green, uh, just before he passed, was, uh, was also expressing doubts about the whole thing. Yeah, same, same sort of thing. And I kind of like to mention, since we're talking about the Patterson-Gimlin film, we, uh, the recent passing earlier this year of Richard Henry, yeah, who uh, passed away at age 86. He was the man who uh, really drew a good map of the film site because he took uh, Jim McLaren and uh, a fellow named Barnett down there on the on November the 5th so he could Jim McLaren could do his study of the tracks. And he just passed away earlier this year. We were lucky to get a good interview with him in 2016. Uh, and, of course, Perez interviewed him in 2004, I believe. Yeah. yeah, He just passed away earlier this year. He was still living here in Humboldt County in Willow Creek. Area. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he drew that map that Daniel published in the Bigfoot Times mm -hmm. uh, from memory. Because they were up wow. there in, what was it, 2006? Uh, this is when our my our Bluff Creek associate Ian saw Daniel up there with Richard Henry just randomly by chance, 
he was also up there looking for the film site back then. And uh, Richard drew this map from memory. And later on, when we took up the quest to find the film site, he found it was actually the most accurate one out there. Uh, more accurate than Titmus's sketch or Green's sketch. It, it actually showed the contours of the creek and the surroundings that, uh, for whatever sad reason, those guys back then didn't bother to document. You know? So, you know, it showed us guidelines of what to look for. And sure enough, you can see the trackway even marked on there. You know, mm -hmm. the, the area where the, the creature walked and they still saw the, the depressions in the sand that um, few months later. Yeah, man, and the road is there on the map, showing the old road as it ran along the side of the creek. You see where the creek took that sharp turn, which it must have changed course since those days, because it certainly doesn't do that anymore, and it basically uh, it's completely changed course before you get to the bowling alley, really. Yeah, the and, only problem uh, with that map is that it was it, it it was vague on which direction was north. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. We didn't know which direction to hold the thing, you know, to compare it to the uh -huh. landscape. Well, yeah, that reason, can be a problem. And the only reason Richard Henry was on this trip is because he was the only one that had a four-wheel drive to get him down there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically, the tactic. <laughs> they went up that old road, which um, the next year, when John Green went back there with Jim McLaren, they were unable to drive all the way up to the film site anymore. Yeah. As a matter of fact, that so road even was... Then, in 68, even, even then, it was impassable. Yeah. Hmm. So it was decommissioned in 67 when the film was shot, too, even though there were stretches of it you could still use. Yeah, well, that, that road beside the creek was mainly improved to some degree because they wanted to salvage log. Right. But, you know, after that, they had no reason to preserve that road. Uh, most mm -hmm. people had no reason to go up there. There were no logging projects, really, um, except on the hillsides, you know, uh, up from there. They're, they're not allowed to cut so close to creek beds anymore, are they? Uh, no, and you know, actually, that's one of the great things about uh, Bluff Creek. Now it had clues all up and down, you know, the the old stumps that they left behind, and then the the remaining big trees were all along the creek. You know, the old growth fir is not easy to find anymore in the in the Pacific Northwest, um, but there's a ton of old growth fir down there in that creek canyon. It's a wonderful area, that's for sure, and hopefully it will stay that way. You know, our trail cameras are up there now watching even when they lock the gates for the winter, which is most of the year. You consider they should be locked now, and they're going to be locked mm -hmm. until June or so when the snow melts and everything's clearing up. But uh, we're watching those areas with our cameras all day, all night, all year round. So whatever goes on in there when the humans are locked out is hopefully going to be recorded um, by our cameras. Do you have cameras there right now as we speak? Oh, yeah. Um, we have, I, I can't remember the number now, about 15 cameras probably, uh, maybe 14. But they're running and they should have 
enough battery in them to last until June. Um, mm. We've got them all set up in various locations. Uh, there's four of them around the film site watching various angles of it. Um, so even wow. if somebody were to try to come in there and, and hoax us, they would uh, be recorded setting up their hoax, you know, by the other cameras. Right. Did you not recently get a footage of a uh, uh, squirrel-like animal that was thought to be basically gone from that area? Uh, the Humboldt Martin. That's it right. Was, mm-hmm. You know, the Martin American Pine Martin, mm-hmm. that this is a distinct subspecies that was uh, isolated by the glacial you know, uh, um, barriers, and a lot of that area was never um, glaciated, frozen over, and um, these were an isolated population, so they're considered a distinct subspecies from the ones on the Sierra Nevada part of the state. Uh, And, of course, they were uh, trapped and hunted, and then they Mm. were... um, killed off, their habitat was destroyed by logging because they like the uh, old-growth forest so they can hide in there uh, from their, their own predators, for one. The the, uh, right. the cats like to get them, and the foxes will get them. I, we think it's fabulous, not to brag, but we were just setting up cameras to see if Bigfoot was there and test the hypothesis that Bigfoot exists. And... Uh, our main principle has always been to just observe objectively what is going on up there in the environment. So uh, whether or not Bigfoot appeared on the cameras didn't really matter to us. It was more just to see what is really happening. So to find that endangered animal, which is now being put on the California endangered species list, uh, was great. You know, um, they had only been seen after they were thought to be extinct in 1996 uh, um, on a camera near the film site, actually, downstream, closer to the Klamath, apparently. But um, they were observed on the coast and the redwood trees. And uh, we got footage of them, um, not just pictures, but video of them romping and playing and apparently mating. Um, there's There's... There's a pair of them running around together up there. So hopefully they're making more babies and expanding the population. Mm-hmm. Um, what other wildlife have you gotten footage of? Research, you know. Right. What other wildlife have you managed to get footage of in the area? Well, just about anything you can imagine in mm-hmm. the uh, in the northern California, extreme northern California region. And Southern Oregon, uh, you know, we we got the also endangered fisher. I mean, I don't know if you heard me say, but both of these animals are being threatened by marijuana production and the uh, poisons they put out for pests. But um, the fisher, uh, the ring-tailed cats, they call them, and uh, the um, barred owls. Actually, they've gotten endless uh, images of bears and bear cubs and. Uh, bears growing up right in front of the camera. Uh, I haven't got any uh, evidence that the California grizzlies still may be around, have you? No. Supposedly they're extinct in the state, but um, right now we have uh, we have wolves that have come into California right northeast of Bluff Creek. 
So mm-hmm. if the wolves are here, the grizzlies are probably not far behind. Yeah. Um, they're in the same areas up north, and the habitat for the grizzly runs just perfectly right through our area. Um, the still intact kind of habitable uh, areas. So we've gotten reports that people say they've seen grizzlies, but um, none are supposed to be here. So I don't know what to say about that. The last California grizzly was shot in 1924 or something like that, officially. And it was declared extinct. But it's part of cryptozoology, too. Some people say they're still around. Who knows? Maybe they are. Well, the grizzlies in in old California were probably distinct genetically from the northern grizzlies. Oh, more likely. Uh, Just like, you know, you see a lot of variance between the inland grizzly bear and the brown bear that is eating a lot of salmon and other food that's really rich. Mm. You know, you got two different kinds of bear, but they're the same species. So whatever was down here in California is extinct, sadly. Um, they were reported to be just gigantic grizzly bears. Mm-hmm. Um, when the Spanish came here, they were eating uh, livestock, you know, and yeah. their numbers actually grew when uh, when the humans started. I mean, the Europeans, not the natives, but when they came in with their cows and sheep and stuff, it was like a feeding trough for the, for the grizzly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, we still have them up yeah. here in large numbers up in British Columbia, but in California, officially, I think the last one was reported shot by a farmer in 1924, and officially, uh, the state symbol on the California flag has been extinct since that time. Uh, but wow. who knows? They're coming back. Well, there was a captive one. That that but uh, if we have, if we have. Uh, Humboldt Martins coming back, and we have wolves re-inhabiting this area, and maybe even grizzly bears in the near future. Then hopefully there's still room for Bigfoot, you know. Um, yeah, in this right. It, wow, it's a plot, that's amazing. You know, we still we still think it's possible that we'll find one up there in Bluff Street. It sure is a prime yeah. area. Right. If, if there's still a if there is a Sasquatch, I've I've, I've never had any doubt. Northern California is a great place to look. Yeah, well, yeah. like you were saying, it is. It's not so much that it's more remote to the film site now, but it's less um, incurred upon by humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in '67 and before that, it was it was full of road development and loggers. Um, they were trying to build a new road over the top of the ridge. They were putting a road that they wanted to go from Orleans to the coast so they could log more of that land up there uh, mm-hmm. along the Beak watershed, which is just north of um, Bluff Creek. But they were stopped by the Native Americans and the environmentalists who uh, pointed out that the, the logging of that area would cause major damage and because of the soil type it wouldn't grow back very well and mm-hmm. uh, also the Native American sacred spots are all right there next to where they wanted to build that stupid road so they stopped mm-hmm. them dead in their tracks and it's actually a dead end now you can drive 30 miles and just hit this barrier and that's it there's no more road mm-hmm. 
but you know that's the Siskiyou Wilderness right there, all around that area, and it's not far from Bluff Creek. Siskiyou Wilderness is a, a prime habitat where very very few people go. Um, it's really out there. Hmm. Well, that's interesting to know that. Uh, sounds like in that particular area, you've got some. Uh, apex predators coming back around so we'll, we'll see what happens yeah it, it would be awesome to see grizzly bears i know a lot of people don't want them but um they managed somehow to live with them in alaska so i don't see what happened with them here british columbia i know i got clawed by yeah. one in 80s <laughs> yeah but they don't wow. come out and just attack you for no reason right <laughs> no no not usually if you most encounters, if it's an attack, it's because you've startled the animal. It, it will uh, attack, and if uh, that's when you're supposed to play dead, because once it's convinced you're not a threat, it, you may get away with being swat and bit once, and then it will lumber off. But if it's a predatory attack, you got to fight, because if you don't, you're going to die. Yep. Yeah, well, exactly. these are different black bears, too. Oh, we yeah. We, matter of fact, we have more casualties bears. every year up here from black bears than grizzlies, yeah. The, the black bears will actually try to um, kill you. The yeah. grizzly bears mostly just want to get rid of you, get you out of their area, get you away from their cubs. Unless it's a predatory attack, in which case it's a, 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 um, it wants to you to use you as food. Yeah, grizzlies are notorious mm -hmm. for that. Yeah. Well, like uh, Timothy Fredwell knew damn well when he was up oh, there late in the season that those were hungry bears who were going into hibernation. And any of those that that were still out and about were going to be hungry as heck. And uh, that's how he ended up dinner for, those, yeah. for that bear. Mm -hmm. uh, some move to do. And he knew better. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, he, he knew better. He was, he was being real stupid. There, yeah. Yeah, that's the kind of thing you got to watch out for because uh, people who are afraid of the Sasquatch and think there's some kind of monster out there, um, you, you, you'd be more likely more nervous with things and four legs and claws than a bipedal primate. Yeah, well, right. also there's no evidence of Bigfoot actually killing anyone. No, I've Bigfoot never, not, not the 40s. I haven't heard of any incidents where someone has reported a Sasquatch intentionally harming a human being, no. Mm -hmm. Just like David Politis would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's in all kinds of other things now, not just Bigfoot. So, yeah. yeah, if it wasn't Bigfoot, it yeah, must have been the evil food got him, you know? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it looks like we're, we're running short here on time, guys. Stephen, we'd love to have you back on for another show. I think we could all have a lot to talk about. I want to thank yeah, you for sure. coming on. Yeah. And I can uh, always talk about this Bigfoot stuff. Uh, yeah. Sometimes three hours a day, someone comes in. Here, <laughs> yeah. And the next thing I, 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 I haven't done any work. <laughs> uh, nothing gets done wow. but Bigfoot. About. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for joining us. And Thomas, it's been another great episode. And I know next month... Uh, we have a very special guest who has agreed to come onto the show, and that is Daniel Perez. So stay tuned for that. I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about there. 
So for On the Shoulders of Giants, Talking Old Timers with Thomas, this is Julie Wrench. I hope you enjoyed the show. Stay tuned with us next month. And until we meet again, keep it fudgy. Thank <laughs> you.